It's been said that language was developed around the hunt. As humans became more successful at hunting, language became more complex. And we kept the tradition of language with meals, whether they are barbecues with friends, dinner parties, holidays, and of course, lunch gloves. So welcome to the great tradition of discussions during a meal. We will chat with all kinds of people doing all kinds of positive things. We will learn new views, share old ones, and maybe even laugh. Make yourself comfortable. And good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us on today's edition of the Lunch Club. We're making some minor changes uh, today, and this is a big day for us. This is a huge day, so we're so happy you've tuned in. And we've got a wonderful guest that we're going to have, so I can tell we're going to have a really good time with. Uh, my name is Eric Hall. Kevin McDonald will be co-hosting today. And our very Hello. special guest. Hello there, Kevin. How are you? I'm good, and you? I'm good. Well, the sun, the weather is uh, beautiful over there. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. actually kind of like that today. Huh. So I've cool. been I've been trolled. It's it's like having a monkey on my back, you know, but a good humor <laughs> troll. So it's you know not not too bad. It's not too bad. So any word from Matt? Yeah, he's here. So just go ahead. Yay! And as always, the rock of the lunch club, Matt O'Shea. There you are. Thank you. Welcome. Good to see you. You look unscathed and smiling. How was your morning? I'm having a fantastic morning. I am getting ready for some Halloween shows, oh. and I've been asked to do a series on haunted lighthouses, East Coast and West Coast, and they're just amazing. Uh, how fun is that? It's a lot of fun. The history behind it. Having wow. the time of my life. Oh, man, that's terrific. I'll look forward to hearing more about that. Now, today's guest is uh, very special to us because uh, Mike runs a band uh, out of Chicago. Chicago. Jungle Mike. And Mike, Mike has written some <laughs> terrific songs about Seattle. He's got one in particular about the troll, this guy sitting behind me, and then about breakfast in Ballard. And most of us here has had breakfast in Ballard. And really, I have to say, there's really no better place on earth to have breakfast than Ballard, because you get it all. You get uh, Ballard and you get breakfast, and you can't beat that. Now, Mike is a fashion guru. <laughs> Not only does he run a terrific band, but he's got a high sense of fashion, as you can see by the decor of his band. We're so happy you're here, Mike, welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're looking forward to uh, hearing all about your band and when you guys formed your particular niche, because you have, uh, I would say you have a rather unusual niche. You guys have a strong character, you know, there's a, and you, you can read it even in how you dress in the decor of your room and, and the sense of music that comes across. There's a playfulness to it uh, behind it. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. It's a, it's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, I, I always, um, uh, if I, you know, back when I started the band, it was, uh, around 2013 and, you know, I was just starting to transition from other failed creative projects and, and I was given music and songwriting a go. And I just said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it with my personality and which is sort of quirky and, you know, humorous, um, <laughs> and is creative, all that stuff. And, and, uh, and yeah, that's just, uh, I've always you know, focused the nature of the lyrics and around high strangeness and, 
um, most notably as of late, uh, that's been around UFOlogy, uh, things like aliens and, um, you know, that's our last two projects that I've released uh, with the help of my musical accomplice, Max Cherry, has, has been themed around, you know, the ancient alien um, subjects. And we've done two already, working on a third. And, uh, you know, even back when we had the band originally, uh, our debut album was was themed around all the similar topics. So that's just kind of our, our niche. Kind of your niche. You said you had other projects going before music. What were they? You know, it was just, I was in my early 20s and evolving and, and trying to find my way in, into the creative arts. I had so many things I wanted to do and try and maybe be, and I wasn't sure how I was going to end up. I mean, I tried everything from stand-up comedy writing to you know, screenplay writing, and, you know, none of them really ever panned out. And then uh, along the same timeline, I, you know, played a little guitar, didn't really think I was going to end up doing stuff like this, but, um, you know, I was encouraged by a guitar instructor of mine who's heard some musical arrangements I was making. And he said, you know, Hey, you should uh, throw some lyrics on it. And just like the light bulb went off. I said, well, you know, I do write, I dabble. I said, you know, maybe I could write songs. And, and what I really liked the most about that is, as opposed to like screenwriting and some other things, there's just so many rules involved with that. With like with a song, you could just, it's really limitless. You could do whatever you want. So um, that sort of a, that, you know, having no boundaries really just, just worked for me. Wow. Wow. That's, that's amazing. No, so no. go ahead, Kevin. I was just going to say, Mike, that you just finished doing a, uh conference somewhere then you had a booth in a place and you were talking about your music and it was a kind of an unusual place to be for a musician what were you doing i it was it was strange so i uh, I, I didn't anticipate on me ending up there but um you know like i said we had done uh, our first alien album was themed around um the tv show ancient aliens or you know Eric Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods, that kind of stuff. And um, I'm, you know, a big fan of the show. And I always wanted to do a, a song or two or ended up being an album about aliens. So that was my first experience with that. And I was literally watching the show as I was done with the first project, just kind of having a moment to enjoy and soak in the moment. Uh, and, and I saw previews for an alien convention, which they call Alien Con. And it was happening, you know, not terribly far from Chicago area. The first one was in Baltimore. And I said, well, you know, it's not a terrible flight. I said, you know, maybe I should look into it and see if I could do something there with the music. And I uh, reached out to the people and they, you know, suggested, a, you know, that I have a booth and um, promote the album and all that. And it was just, it was a blast. It was all weekend long. And, you know, I had all sorts of suits like this and I uh, just made connections there that, you know, uh, are still active to this day. We should play one of his songs, Kevin. Hey, there's a good idea. Now, yeah. now, because of the high degree of technology I have, <laughs> I have two songs that are all uh, queued up and ready to go. Which one I'm going to play, I haven't got a clue. So Mike's going to have to tell us which one it is after it's done, and then we can talk <laughs> about it. Can we do that? <laughs> now, the second one I'll know because... We will have already played the first one. So I, that makes I, sense, I, yeah. Yeah, I'll, by process of elimination, I'll have it ready to go. <laughs> so so this is, um, Mike, would you please, we were, we were not arguing about it, but we were trying to figure out the name of your band and how to pronounce it. Can you do that for us? Sure, it's Majungas. 
Ah, Majungas. you were right. I was wrong. Majunga. And is is a Majunga a particular person, place, or thing? It is. It's it's a shortened name for a dinosaur called Majungasaurus. We had uh, I learned about you know I'm into dinosaurs too a little bit you know so I, I learned about the Majungasaurus dinosaur and it had a very brutal upbringing and it was just a very bizarre looking dinosaur as well which I thought was kind of funny in a way so I uh, I, I, I I one of the first songs that I wrote was actually a song dedicated to the Majunga uh, called Majunga and um, wow. and I and when I had formed the original band. Um, that was like the song that we all really sort of connected around. So I, you know, we, I remember practicing the song Majunga and with the with the group and the hair standing up on my arms, and we all just kind of looked at each other and we we're like, we gotta like name ourselves after this song, I think, and roll with this thing a little more. And and that's how we got the name. That is a badass looking dinosaur, man. <laughs> wow. Yes, indeed. Well, shall we shall we play one of the songs? Yeah, let's do it. All right. This is Majungus, and um, here we go. I was killing time at the high life, placed in order for the waffle slam. Watching Ballardites flood the farmer's market on a Sunday at 10 a.m. The roads are blocked for the day's events with vendors stationed inside their tents. The street musicians are ready to play breakfast in Ballard. What a wonderful day! Incoming boats unload their catch at the fishermen's terminal docks. While tourists migrate to the west, visiting the Ballard Locks. Kudos to Chet and Den's design. His concrete walls stood the test of time. From Puget Sound through Salmon Bay. Breakfast in Ballard, what a wonderful day. The monster art and clothing store Sells paintings with creepy eyes And Sonic Records has crates of vinyl I'll hang out till my bus arrives But the rapid ride was running late I'll take a walk and get a coffee from Slate. I see blue behind those skies of gray. Breakfast in Ballard, what a wonderful day. I said breakfast in Ballard, what a wonderful day. <laughs> and that is Mike Gentile, and that is Majunga doing a song about Ballard. 
how did you know all that? You must have spent all day Ooh. there. You're from Chicago, and you gave us a real flavor Man. for what the the the, uh, the Ballard uh, the locks are like, and the uh, and that the. Uh, farm uh thing they do on sunday even knew it was west to the locks man that's pretty good <laughs> yeah I, I studied a map before i wrote the wrote it down just to so i made sure everything was accurate as possible but yeah uh i and it's funny because i've heard a couple people say that to me as well you know that that like the seattle songs that we did they said you, you know you were only there for a week you know visiting <laughs> i was like they're like we thought we thought you were from there i'm like no i was, I literally spent, it was an early morning, but we, we, we got to Ballard early and we left in the mid to late afternoon. So it was, you know, it was very jam packed. I mean, we had a lot that we wanted to do. Um, and yeah, I was, uh, you know, I, I just remember around that time and really the whole time that I was in Seattle, I, I had worked on that court arrangement and I had recorded it and I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. And for whatever reason, it was just, jingling around in my head that you know it, and it became real intense when i was in ballard for some reason and i just kind of flowed with the song and and, and the pace in which things were happening um so i thought it was, it was really suitable to to pair my experiences with with the song and uh, it really was sequential and accurate to the things that i did there um it was you know a, a simple day, but really a wonderful day all at the same time. Matt? What I, we were overdue to have an answer to Perry Como. He did the wonderful <laughs> song about this city, the bluest skies, but we're yeah. going back decades ago, and you brought us right up to the year 2021. You are an average guy walking down the street, calling it the way it is, and it has that flair, that bounce, that beat to it. This is fun what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, it makes me smile. Now, <laughs> forgive me, but you remind me a bit of Rick Ocasey. <laughs> oh, yeah, the car. Uh, right, right to my uh, left here. I literally I have a, the debut uh, vinyl record of, of the cars. It's one of the most underrated debut albums, I think, of all time, too. But, yeah, I'm a big Cars fan, so that wow. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Boy, that is dynamite. That is dynamite. Like I say, you've got a real playful but real uh, approach to what you do. And I, I've heard the troll and be honest with you, those are the only two songs that I've heard. And, you know, now I did read on your website cause you have a website called majungasband.com. You could get to it either which way, but yeah, uh, majungas.com works as well. Majungas.com. And you've got, uh, you've got a few, you've got a few songs there. I think what about 12, 16 songs. Um, yeah, well, our first, our day, de our debut album um, back in 2013 was was 13, and then you know we had a couple of the singles that we did, but then there's um, the Alien stuff, which is starting to rack up in song tracks. We had a 10 on the first one, and I think uh, 11 on the second one. So, how many albums have you done in total? Have you done three? Three full albums, couple of singles, and we're currently working on our third full album right now. Wow! Congratulations that that is quite a uh, a a job to to put together an album and to produce it and and all that stuff. Who who does your producing for you? Uh, it's all self run. Uh, you know when when we started it, it was you know um, it was my sort of I was sort of I guess the driving force because I had created demos when I was just you know figuring out 
you know, what I was going to do creatively here. And then I had the demos that uh, attracted some musicians in my inner circle and we formed the band. Well, the band split apart about three years into it. So I, I took the Majunga's name and, and I just continued to write and record songs in the studio. So uh, that I have set up here at home. So, I, I, um, you know, we just do everything um, self-run. Do you, do you play all the instruments too? No, um, I, uh, I, I, on the demos I do, but, but then I collaborate with, uh, with a local musician and a good friend of mine who I knew from the early days in the Jungas, and he, he, um, he lays quite a bit into it now with the alien rock stuff that we're doing. He does, you know, keyboard synthesizer and a much more aggressive, uh, style of guitar than I do, but I'll do the bass, the vocals and some rhythm guitar. Matt, you just said alien rock. Did you coin a phrase? Are you the first ones to come out with that? Because I love that concept. And also, what got you interested in that topic? Well, uh, I, I'm definitely not the first. Uh, or it, um, I know there's there's um, some bands, because even when I was in Alien Con, there was a lot of uh, uh, guys that would come up to me and say, hey, did you ever hear this one band from the 70s or 80s? They were Alien Rock. So, uh, really? so yeah, I, I forgot some of the names of them. But uh but yeah, definitely not the first. There's um, maybe we're the first to really take the subset of what they would call the ancient astronaut theory, and you know the belief that maybe aliens had a involvement in early mankind and all that stuff. So maybe I'm the first to really focus on that so much and generate two, three albums now uh, <laughs> with that. But I, you know, I'm 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 I've always been sort of a a weird person really interested in odd topics and you know fringe <laughs> stories and stuff like that so um, welcome to the club yeah You're singing with the chorus right here we'll be so, the background chorus. so really aliens have just been part of that 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 um you know umbrella of things that i'm interested in and i, I guess over the years it became more of a deeper interest and um and then of course there's all sorts of disclosure and and sightings and conspiracies that you know come about now with the media and everything that sort of spiked the interest a little bit more so i guess it just kind of fit with the timeline i, I was in a creative mood i had a good you know rhythm going i'm finally you know feel like i'm, I'm making a difference with what my creative side and and i have this band thing and, and i got a system that works and it was just like topic was there and i'm like yeah let me see what i could squeeze out of this and i i'm surprised that i've made three albums um thus far it's uh i keep saying everyone is my last one and then you know i, I sit around for a few more months and then more ideas start coming <laughs> you found your groove well you know since you're talking about aliens and rock i think it's worth the worth discussing about aliens and language and music yeah you know I, we've been led at least the movies I grew up with, you know, all involved mostly classical music. And of course, when uh, Close Encounters came out, it was that simple. Mm -hmm. But yeah, mm -hmm. and, and they communicated with uh, with music. Is your approach, uh, does it encompass any of that? Um, yeah, I, I, I guess the only thing I could maybe think of that might be similar is I know aliens and some of the theories and belief is that they communicate sort of telepathically. And and um, uh, my approach to music is very um, sort of hands off and, and spiritual almost in a way. I don't really think too much about it. I just sort of let it manifest in my mind and then it just kind of comes to my hands. So, um, so yeah, 
maybe somewhere there's there's a, you know a ufo craft and extraterrestrials and they're just you know putting this stuff into my into my mind you know and it just it comes out but <laughs> they're your muse you know yeah. somewhere along the way interesting interesting if you were to describe alien rock what how would you describe it uh, you know, the, the instrument that comes to mind is one that I don't even play. Uh, my my uh, musical partner plays a, a synthesizer. So I just, I don't know, I just think weird. It's just the word that comes in my mind, you know, how, and when I'm coming up with a sound, it's just like how weird and eerie can can we make this? <laughs> There's a, a thorum, a thurum, thurum, though, you know, woo, yeah, a lot, of sound, a lot of sound effects. Yeah. Mike, there's an awful lot of talk on the shows that the four of us like watching that they are amongst us. Now, I personally think they are because I think we're kind of blind to our origin and we're getting it in little increments. What's your opinion about that concept that there's some aliens in our form, our likeness, and we didn't realize we walked by one or something like that? I, I I love all of that. Um, I, I don't know if I have any concrete, you know, definitive reason to support or make some claim like this is how it happened. But, um, you know, I, just me thinking logically and looking at medical science and thinking about human DNA and, and the process of evolution, a lot of it, things can be answered if you just sort of ignore what you were raised to believe in and the origin of man is and you just think, what if we were, you know, artificially created or manipulated? Um, and, you know, and, and that's how our, our species came about, you know, so it, it is interesting. And then the more things that they find, you know, these distant planets that are habitable and they, they could host life and that with the sightings, I mean, not all of them I'm sure are, are true, but so many I'm sure are. Um, and yeah, I think it just, it all fits. I don't know if, if we have the answers right now. And, and if somebody does, they're, they're trying to keep it a secret. Well, I'll tell, I'll tell you, go, go ahead, Eric. Go ahead. Go ahead. Kevin. Well, I was just gonna, I was just gonna mention that I was, uh, um, reading an article the other day and they were saying, you know, how many planets are there in the universe? And they figured out by, uh, ex by by doing the math that there are billions of galaxies each one with billions of stars and the number had like 15 zeros behind it and it's like quadrillion or or zeptillion or some some crazy number that's that's like really huge of how many planets there are and i just by the law of averages since there is one that we know about that's got human life on it, that there has to be more just by the law of averages. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, we did one of the songs on our first album. I wanted to make sure that I, I dedicated a song about that sort of probing deep space and explorations and finding all these interesting potential planets uh, of interest that might host life. And it was a, a song we did called Trappist One, Can You Hear Me? Um, but yeah, no, it's something I feel I feel very strongly about. And anytime there's there's a new article release about those types of planets, just gets me all excited again. Go ahead, Eric. You know, um, well, one of the things that I've always thought about, you know, now now that we're in with space flight, 
and we have the real possibility of getting farther out into space so that we can see deeper. And people are talking about interdimensional travel as well. And we're kind of going farther out into space to maybe find a way to uh, find aliens, but we're not spending enough time on this planet finding those inner uh, interdimensional doors. And we have these uh, other creatures with complex, we're finding out about their complex languages. And I guess one of the best examples of that is Star Trek, uh, was it four or five? We're with a whale. That was four. That was four. And what was it Spock said? You know, it would be arrogant to think that uh, we're the only species. And this is Spock, you know, out of, out of the Federation, out of all those planets. It would be arrogant to think that uh, the only species on Earth uh, that uh, aliens would want to visit are humans. Well, you've got to remember, he was from Vulcan. Yeah, exactly. And, he, you know, with all those other people on, on these other planets that connected. And, they're not, and we're not looking, you know, completely at... Uh, the possibilities on our own planets. That's what that uh, suggested to me. Yeah, I, th I think uh, it's interesting that, you know, you mentioned the animals and or just because sometimes when we think of extraterrestrial life, we think of people like us. But I think the more likelihood is uh, is that it probably is taking shape in something that we can't even imagine, you know, um, uh, especially some of these watery type places. Uh, like a, in our, even in our own solar system, they're, they're, I know they're flirting with the idea of drilling a hole down in a Enceladus, which is a ice encrusted moon that's just a big ocean underneath it. And I'm just, I, I, I don't know if we'll catch, I'll catch it in my lifetime, but I would just do anything to just be a little lens on that camera probe when it, when it cracks down there to just see what's swimming around underneath there. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you know, they say, you know what they're saying about the octopus lately? They're kind of geeked up about the octopus, and it's not, uh, they, they can't explain that it uh, is completely from this planet because it's so unique in its uh, structure. They say it's not indigenous, it's not from here. Yeah, so, I, you know, that leaves a meteorite somehow, you know, crashed into the sea, and somehow part of it, uh, you know, survived or whatever. So, Mike, now with the possibility of space flight, getting on there with Bezos and maybe Captain Kirk, man. Uh, have you bought your ticket yet? <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it's not quite in my budget yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't right. in Captain Kirk's either, but uh, Bezos uh, <laughs> I fronted him the cash. Yeah, I would too if I was Bezos. <laughs> I wouldn't have left Ohura behind though. So, so, um, um, Mike, you got to tell us about the next song that we're about to play is about the uh, troll in Seattle. And Eric is going to, or Matt, you guys, I've never been there. So you guys, if you both, Matt, have you seen the trolls? I have not. Ah, so this is Eric. Eric, where did, you've seen the trolls. You've actually taken a video of them. Where are they and why are they there? Well, it's a single troll and it's under the bridge and it was a public art art piece. It was a competition and group uh, groups of artists you know artist teams put together proposals to uh, do something interesting under there and there is a number of uh, pieces that were proposed of course but everyone loved this troll you know a troll hanging out under a bridge that's the perfect thing uh, for any bridge but uh, particularly fremont since it's the center of the universe 
And it's also um, self-fundraising. There's a place there, there's a little uh, coin receptor and you can put in coins and that helps pay for the maintenance and so forth. And I forget the names of the people that uh, the artists put that back together. Mike, do you know that? Mm, not off the top of my head, no. Uh, but it's made out of uh, cement and wires and it's beautiful. You can climb on it. They encourage you to. Eric? Yeah. That Fremont Bridge holds a distinction. Do you know what that is? Are you, is that the Elvis uh, Elvis time thing? No, it's not that. Do you know what it is, Kevin or Mike? No. I, I do. It, it keeps stopping Metro buses every time I'm driving over. <laughs> the Fremont <laughs> Bridge rises and closes more than any other bridge on the planet. Really? On a daily basis, that one goes up and down to let traffic through more than any other one in the world. Unless wow. it gets stuck, which happens occasionally. Well, I know it feels like that whenever I drive a bus across there. That is the other interesting thing about that uh, troll sculpture is that under his hand, you know where you got that? Is it a little VW bus, a little VW bug. And inside that bug, it was a Elvis time capsule. And the idea was 100 years from when they installed that piece of work, then they would uncover that time capsule and there'd be this great Elvis par paraphernalia, but uh, some Elvis fan uh, snuck in there one night and broke into it and took, took away the, the time capsule, but they did replace the VW bus, v bug. So, so Mike, how did a lad from Chicago find out about the troll and not only go there, but write a song about it? A song wasn't part of the plan um, originally, but, you know, I just wanted to, I think we, the way we had the day sort of staggered was to start off in Ballard and then just sort of migrate our way over to, to Fremont for the later half of the day. And somewhere along the process, we'd stop underneath the bridge and take a picture of the troll. And that's really all that was supposed to happen. Um, but there was some, something unique about Fremont that just really resonated with me. You know, I just I felt the the creativity of the town and that sort of quirky vibe that they have and sense of humor. And, you know, they really don't shy away from it with all the art and decor that they have in the streets. So um, I was already on a roll with with thinking doing the, you know, writing the Ballard song. And I just thought, you know, it would be cool if I paid tribute to Fremont and and the, the feelings that I had when I was out there. And I thought maybe incorporate the troll into it somehow. So, uh, so I just came up with as creative of a story as I could, where the troll just magically comes to life and, and just starts parading down downtown Fremont and wreaking havoc, you know, and living like a local. <laughs> and I incorporated as many actual places and things and artwork and locations in downtown Fremont that I could into the story and somehow try and make sense out of it. That's so, so cool. Did you miss the um, annual Fremont Naked Bicycle Run? <laughs> yeah, I missed that one. Uh, I, I did read about it when we were looking up things to do and stuff like that. It came up in one of the past events, but yeah, it's probably for the better. I missed out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow I just can't imagine riding a bicycle without any, uh, you know, like padding or anything. I, oh, yeah. yeah. That's just me. I'd be worried about getting caught in the chain, but that's my problem. <laughs> so let's 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 play. And Eric, do you want to play uh, that song? Go for it, man. And Mike, what's the what's the actual name of the song? If somebody wants to go to iTunes and buy it, 
Uh, it's just called the Fremont Troll. Very good. And this is uh, uh, Mike from Majengus, and this is the Fremont Troll. It was just an ordinary day, heading up to Fanny Ridge, driving through that orange and blue Fremont Bridge. When I got to 36th Street, there came a rumble from the east. I was staring down by the hub-capped eye of a country beast. And that is Mike Gentile. And the name of the band is called Majungus, and that is the Fremont Troll. That's, that's really cool, and thank you for that. Uh, Matt, what do you think? I think it's fantastic to go to Fremont. Is there a little bit of hate Ashbury about Fremont? A little bit. It's been there forever. We have uh, competing with the University of Washington, but that's our little neck, and you're p playing such a great tribute, a great homage to it. That's a community that'll never change. Now, now, Mike, I'm sure that you know that Fremont and Ballard were really the the place where grunge got its start with the with the with the high dive and the number of bands that that played there. And are you familiar with that? Yeah, that's actually what what um, drove me to want to visit the Pacific Northwest because I'd never been there. I have no other connections to it other than the trip we made six years ago to just you know check out the the 
the area. And one of the things that I had that was calling to me was, you know, I grew up in the nineties. So, you know, that rock grunge scene and knowing so many great bands that came out of that area was part of that reason. You know, I kind of wanted to see, you know, what's this culture all about? What's this community all about? You know, that, that all these great bands, you know, uh, got their start in. So, uh, and I, you know, I could easily see why, you know, I came away so impressed with just the supportiveness that, you know, they all, all those neighborhoods have around their, their local arts and, and, um, and entertainment. So it, it certainly made sense, but yeah, that's a big part of the reason why I came out there. Well, yeah. So, so guys, uh, give us the names of some of the bands that came out of the, the, uh, Fremont and Ballard area and the grunge scene. Hmm. Were they playing in the firehouse Ballard firehouse? Then they played there. They played at the high dive. They played at uh, different different venues. There's several of them at that time. There were more. There are several of them all up and down uh, Fremont Avenue. And on Friday, Saturday night, people are going everywhere. It's it really is quite the scene. Um, this, but this, uh, this is killing me. He was raised in the '80s. I'm from the '60s, and so I remember the rock bands that came out of Tacoma, Washington, a different era altogether. So now you're educating me here. Um, you know, I'm dating myself a bit. Well, Mike, let's go go down the list. There was, let's see, there was Allison Chains. There was um, um, the one that. Uh, um, uh, well, Kirk, I, Kirk yes, there's Nirvana. Nirvana is the big one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Allison Chains, uh, Soundgarden, I believe, Pearl yep. Jam. Yeah. Queens, right? Yeah. So the, those are the four of those, the core four of that 90s era, at least that stick out to me. I, I believe um, going back to classic rock era, isn't Hart from Seattle area? Well, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So from the Steve Queen Miller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Steve Miller. She was? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. But but uh, going back to when, when Hart came out and they started, they were the first female band to really do do really well and uh and they were they were a big hit around here and then they went national so you know ann and ann and nancy wilson still live here um and they still they still play a lot so it's great um one one of my one of my favorite moments after after the we had done the seattle songs was i actually um sent copies of the song or links to the song maybe to um jack and dino who is one of the engineers of nirvana and i you know he's still native to that area and i I actually got a response from him and he he said he found he said he found the song very amusing (laughs) (laughs) so uh, so yeah that was that was sort of my high moment i was like oh jack and dino gives it the thumbs up i feel good those bands you just mentioned who i am not i still heard of all those bands Alice in Chains, Soundgarden. So it has reached out to me. I just didn't realize that was my backyard. Mm-hmm. And Nirvana um, had a drummer who turned out to be a pretty decent drummer. <laughs> um, and and he ended up with, oh gosh, I had it right on the tip of my th- Mike, you'll know. Oh, the Foo Fighters. Thank David you. Grohl. David Grohl. Yes, indeed. And uh, David Grohl has, turned, has had quite a career doing a lot of different stuff and even the foo nirvana made the uh, um um hall of fame and now we're so old the foo fighters are now making the <laughs> hall of fame that just amazes me we've had almost as big of a impact on music as chicago not I mean, even close man you know i mean <laughs> chicago you look, you look at any decade chicago has been 
has been doing it. Well, is there a neighborhood in Chicago similar to Fremont? Nothing that I could really think of. I mean, uh, Chicago's really, it's really large and there's all sorts of like little neighborhoods that have sort of their own little culture and vibe. I can't really, there might be some that might be called hipster, but um, I don't think are, are nearly as into it and as passionate as I got when I was out in Fremont. Uh, there's no neighborhood that I could think of that's like a. Where did uh, the Chicago Transit Authority come from? <laughs> I love that group. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'd have to look that up. Uh, well, that's that's sorry. That's before your time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they turned they turned into Chicago, and uh, and they were so that and they they were one of the best bands of all time. They so. did a little bit of Alien Rock. They did what it was at 2024. They did. Was that the name of the song? 2024. No, two two. Um, no, it was. Two, uh, two, Two, yeah, it was uh, four. Um, <laughs> I forget. Forgive us, Michael. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah, okay, see. But that was written about him. It was four o'clock in the morning, and he couldn't go to sleep, oh. and he and uh, he was trying to write a song. Forgive me, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, what's in the what's in the cards for you? What I know that in your background, you were a medical professional, and thank you for your service. Uh, to to help people uh, um, get to the hospital and stuff like that, you were a paramedic. Um, what's new? What's in the What's in the cards for you? Where Where do you see yourself in ten years? Mm, yeah, it's it's great. It's hard to think about. I, I was thinking, you know, ten years ago, you know, if you would have came up to me and told me I'd be, you know, I'd have almost forty something songs written and recorded, I, I think you're. I'd said you're crazy. But so yeah, ten years. Wow. I mean, who knows? Um, I do really feel grounded and sort of uh, happy and content with the arrangement that I have now. And even though it's certain things get tested, of course, with, you know, the world flipped upside down with, with the pandemic and all that, you know, I still it took a, maybe a few months to adjust, but, you know, yeah, I got back into that creative groove again and, and balance and work life and, and creative projects. So I'm, still really happy with that. I just want to keep it going as long as I can. And, um, I try to, I try to not force it or think about it too much, you know, or, or plan too far ahead. Cause you know, obviously tomorrow's never guaranteed. So I just, uh, I just one project at a time and, and, uh, and that's sort of my approach. I mean, is it one of your dreams to put a band together and go hire a bus and to go on the road again? That was the thought. That was the fantasy initially. You know, you sort of think about that. Um, when I had an actual band, we were a rock trio. We had two other guys and, you know, we did the local circuits in the Chicago area, nothing too massive or big, but, um, you know, we did, do, we did gig regularly and, and had a nice live set going. And, and that was the thought, you know, you would end up doing that. I think that's just kind of what you envision based off of, you know, rock history and seeing what other bands do and, movies and tv shows i'll put that idea in your head um never really quite happened like i said before we started to get into some meaningful songs that people were really interested in the band split apart and with the alien rock stuff there's a big market for that and people are really interested in it but there's just two of us now and we make music in a studio so it's hard to get out and, and envision, you know, traveling and, and all that without a drummer, without a full ensemble, you know, bassist and all that. Um, and I think right now, 
our main focus is just doing the doing the music in the studio and making it available for people to listen to however they want to listen to it and uh and i think eventually i know it's my 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 uh partner that I work with, Max Cherry, is a, you know, also a local musician who does his own projects and everything as well. But he, uh, that's, a, that's a big um, uh, thing that he wants to do with the band. He wants to, he wants to actually make it uh, a band again and do shows and, and sort of resurrect that part of Majungas again. So I'm, I'm excited about that thought too. But um, for right now, it's just make the album, get that done, and then we'll, we'll try and build up more and and maybe get back out to um, a traveling act again. It only takes one. Yeah. Now, I have to ask, is your show a little bit quirky as well? A show? Yeah, like when you perform oh, on stage. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, so Majungas, when when we first were, were, were going with the original act, doing live shows, yeah, we had, it was like, I mean is like Broadway. I mean, I had so many costumes in the backstage and I would, I would dress up as a dinosaur when I did the dinosaur song, Majunga. Really? Uh, well, yeah. Cause I, yeah. You, you should see, I mean, just to see the people's faces, you know, that were in, in the bars, you know, just turn around and see, is that a dinosaur singing a song, <laughs> singing a song right now? You know, yeah, it, it, it caught people off guard and um, maybe grab some attention, but, uh, but yeah, that was sort of our thing. We always, well, and we would even have some of my, you know, our, our close friends, you know, dress up as actors and like act out little skits or mind little skits while we were playing a song about a particular, oh, man, you know. Man, sound like fun. Yeah, it, they were they were fun. They were very energetic and entertaining. And and I think my early influence and interest in, in theater and acting and screenwriting, all of that sort of stuff kind of came out a little bit into the performance act. So, um, so that, that was, that was definitely something we wanted to, or we wanted to make a point of in the early days. And we only did, um, my partner and I did one show, which is the duo. And we had a lot of electronic help, you know, to play some of the backing tracks with the drums and stuff like that. And we did one show, um, uh, before the pandemic and that that turned out pretty well and i think we were interested in, in doing more opportunities like that because it's convenient and easy to just set up two people and some some backing tracks and play out through a pa and um you know we were talking about getting like pink floyd-esque type laser light shows and make it really spacey oh, yeah. so yeah there, there's uh there's a lot of fun things we could do when are you coming to seattle again man I, I think about it all, all the time, you know, uh, my wife and I both think about it a lot. I mean, we, we were thinking, I mean, if it wasn't for, you know, work and family and life and situations anchoring us down here, we were like, you know, thinking, oh, man, can't we locate? It's, it's really a great place. And um, I, I can't wait to go get back out there. We were almost going to go um, for our 10 year wedding anniversary out to uh, uh, that area again, and maybe travel around some of the other areas and, uh, that was right before COVID hit. So we, that shut us down. So, but it, it is in our, our to-do list. We will get back out there at some point. That's good to hear. I hope you, I hope uh, you bring a partner along too and you do a show. I would love to see you guys live. I think that would be a kick. Yeah. If I could, if I could do it all over again and just magically drop Majungas in a map somewhere, it would be right in the heart of Fremont. That's, that was our, that was the, the same creative quirky vibe that they were given off there is is exactly what the music is all about so i think that would that definitely be a place i'd love to do a show mm. 
Well, you know, if you got a whole bunch of money to drop on a house, <laughs> you can move out here and move to Fremont and, you know, drop a million dollars on a two-bedroom, one-bath. <laughs> it's got to be similar in Chicago, oh, right? Lord. Yeah, we're not too bad because we're out in the in the surrounding neighborhoods, uh, the suburbs. Um, but, uh, but yeah, city life is no joke here. Hmm. Yeah, see, we're looking at, I've uh, been looking at condos lately and had a had a huge communication problem with my real estate agent because I said a condo and I showed up, she showed me a cat condo, but it was in the budget that I was uh, looking for. I almost took it. 300 square feet and uh, the ceiling is like four feet high. Uh, yeah, but I can access it around. with the carpet. I can just climb up the carpet. I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> So, so Mike, it's been great pleasure having you having you here. Is there anything that you'd like to ask any of these any of these foolish people? You know, I actually I, I had the thought earlier in the show, um, Matt. You had mentioned something about the East Coast. What uh, what was it that you're doing out there in the East Coast? What areas? Well, I get on various shows, and I'm doing a Halloween tribute. And so, my friend Gary, who works for several places, actually, one of which is the American Road Trip Talk. We decided to focus on lighthouses that claim to be haunted. So I'm getting a few out of Maine. I've never been there. He has one out of Florida, St. Augustine. But then over here in the West Coast, there's a handful. I've been on all of them. So we're going to make a fun Halloween show, give the recordings, and tantalize people to get out there, tour these things, and you know, bring the family, have fun. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, Halloween is a big time for for us too, you know and tom and the, the costumes and all that but uh, uh i mean actually we did do a song once about um salem massachusetts which when you mentioned uh, when you mentioned the west the, coast. when you mentioned the east coast i thought about that because i did spend some time out in salem when i visited boston and i learned about the the haunted happenings it's like that whole month-long celebration of halloween that they do out there and um i I had always joked about it, you know, growing up, like, you know, we should celebrate the whole month of Halloween, not just one day, but out there, I guess they do that. So I, I we wrote a song about it. It's called Spirit of Salem. So it's kind of a spooky that is neat. song. We have a town called Coopville, Washington, and they spend the month celebrating it. And it is sensational how the whole town gets into it. All 14 people. It's amazing. It really is. <laughs> 14 people. <laughs> so... So, Mike, it's, it's a pleasure having you on the show. And will you come back? And and, uh, and next time you come back, we want to play some of your latest stuff and uh, and talk about the alien stuff. And that would be that would be really cool for you to do. Yeah, I look forward to it. Hopefully, uh, hopefully sometime before this year is over, we'll, we'll have it wrapped up and uh, and we'll, we'll get back on. Oh, when you're you ready to, as they say, drop the album, <laughs> um, you'll have to come back and, and we'll uh, uh, promote it for you. We'll do now, that. Do you, do you guys drop an al album or do you like uh, anti gravity? It. <laughs> it's a yeah. It's a good question. I guess it's one to ponder anyway. Yeah, I guess we just it just downloads in your brain magically. I guess. Indeed, indeed. So, uh, gentlemen, any other questions you have for Mister Mike? It's been fun, Mike. Thank you. Thank Mike, you. you've got a unique style, and I know a lot of your stuff's going to be hitting the airwaves. And it's like what you said about the cars. The moment your stuff is playing, people will know that's Mike's band. I appreciate it. 
I really wish, Mike, that that the music industry wasn't so, for lack of a better word, screwed up uh, <laughs> right now, and the and the and the talent like you can get heard easier and could get paid easier than it is today. And I'm hoping that they'll they'll fix all of that so that uh, you get what you deserve. I appreciate that. Thank you. Much success. Much success. Yes, indeed. So, ladies and gentlemen, we will be back at the top of the hour. We have a gentleman by the name of Steve Snyder. His father was shot down in World War II, and he survived. His father survived and was hiding from the Nazis for seven months. And we're going to talk about his, and he's written a book. And uh, the book is called um, Shot Down. And it's by uh, Steve Snyder, and we're going to talk to him in its entirety in the next hour. So stay tuned, and we'll be back right after this, uh, about a six- or seven-minute break. But, Mike, thank you again for being here. Mike. um, Good to see you, Mike. From uh, Majungus. and uh, go fun. Majungus.com and find out about all he's doing. And, by the way, go download and buy some of his songs. I would appreciate it if you would do that. Um, he's got, he's a great musician and a great songwriter and, uh, and he deserves to get paid. So, uh, Mike, thank you. Thank you. We'll see you soon. See you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Okay, guys. Now we're going to migrate over to the other studio. So I'm going to leave this studio and I'll meet you over there. I'm going to do a quick migration of my own. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Do I just sit here and do nothing? No, you're going to migrate with us, man. Go to that other link that you were at earlier. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what we're doing. Okay, so um, go to the other link. Can you send it to me, or I got to fish it up? Uh, fish it up. That's probably the easiest thing. Okay, so I'll get off and get back on. Yep. Okay, we'll see. Okay. Did I do the right one? Uh, he's here, but his camera's not working. Um, maybe he can. Um... Can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? 
Yes, Steve, we can hear you now. I don't, I don't know what the deal is. I just like went on Skype a little while ago just to check the camera and then turn it off, and now it says it can't connect. Um, you might try and um, and exit and come back. I don't know. Okay, I'll try that. We're not live yet, are we? No. I like that first show. I did too. I did too. This is going to be really is good. Is this one positive talk? Yes. Okay, so we just did lunch club and now we're positive talk. Um, it's it's going to, I, for this, for, let's see. Um, device is not connected. For this show, I think we'll play the, uh, the, the My Independence Report uh, uh, opening. But the uh, the one we just did with Mike, that was the lunch club, right? That was the lunch club. And did you hear the uh, opening? Uh, no, I didn't. Be right back. Okay. Um, but so this this is live radio now, right? Yeah, this will be live as well. Yeah. Okay. The other one that was podcast, right? No, that was also live. Oh, they were both live radio. Live, well, live uh, podcasts. They're on um, uh, YouTube, a couple of channels, and Facebook, a couple of channels. Um, but they're not on, let's see. Let me see. Steve? I, I, I could try closing my computer and then log it back on, but that'll take a few couple minutes. That's all right. We got we got a little bit of time, so that would be great. Other than that, we can uh, just use your audio, but uh, I'd like to see you. Yeah, I'd like, yeah. That, okay, let, let me, let me, uh, Close my computer and log and log back on. Okay. All right. See you in a bit. Yes, sir. But this here is radio now, right? KK and W. No, it's not. It's not KK and W. The KK and W is on it from four to five. Okay, so we're still podcasts. Yes. Okay. You move around a lot, Kevin. All this radio stuff. I know. Would this be considered radio? What we're doing. Uh, it could be. Um, it's also considered video. Okay. So, I am having a lot of fun on this lighthouse stuff. Amazing amount of suicides in lighthouses. Oh, People who got that. lonely, the husband died, whatever. Um, Steve, um, Eric, Steve, are you? can you hear me? He has to put in his earpieces. Um, Steve is restarting his computer because he wasn't able to uh, uh, get on with uh, video. Eric, can you hear me? I uh, caught you where you just said video. Oh, um, Steve is uh, re restarting his computer so he can maybe get on uh, video and audio. We got him on audio, but not video. Great. Good. Okay. So yeah, no, no, Matt. The, the, I'm doing uh, all of this plus KKNW and stuff like that. I would love to, you know. I don't know how Eric feels about it, but since you've been doing all this research, it would be fun to have you on the lunch club to talk about haunted. He's nodding, so to talk about haunted houses and and East Coast and West Coast. Well, sure, I will be with um, Eileen Grimes and um, and um, Gary Matz. I'll be doing them on uh, the thirtieth and Gary the 29th, but yeah, I mean, we all, we all have that stuff. And if that's ever a topic, the three of us could throw a lot in. 
Hey, hey, well, I know nothing about it, so that would be you. That would be you, and I would ask you questions. Hopefully, they're reasonably intelligent. Uh, that uh, um, because you are you are going to become. I hey, predict. Hey, the other day I went to a haunted hotel off of Madison, uh, the Hotel Sorrento. It's yeah, it's really? it scared me so bad. I left the room and I heard a groan in the process when I left it. And then when I went back to the front desk, because everybody was talking to me, they'd buy me tea, sit me in the bar. They said, oh, you checked out of the room? Okay, now we're going to tell you a few more stories. Room 408 and the entire fourth floor is her big haunted. And here's the catch. Alice B. Tolkien, who invented the marijuana brownie in 1954, she's the resident, goes the headliner. But they have lots of stuff. The cooks came out and talked to me. I was taking notes. I got scared. I left. And then I was up at Concrete, Washington at one of their haunted hotels. And when I came back later, the lady wouldn't rent me a room because I was too suspicious talking about this stuff. I gave her the willies. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. So we've got, let's see, I'm going to move that back. Uh, um, I'm going to edit that and move it back 15 minutes. So. Fifteen. Save changes. Eric, you do a sensational job bringing people in here. Oh, thank you. Mike was fantastic. Others, one you've had, and this is great stuff. Yeah, got lucky with this guy. Although his music was—that's what attracted me. It was so cool. Well, he's a guy off the street that has a rhythm, and we all understand him. He's one of us. Yeah, he is, isn't he? What an easygoing guy. I really like him. Really liked him. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, we've now got eleven minutes. Oh, wait, there's Steve. There he is. His picture showed up. <laughs> well, I, I I got on a different computer. Oh, very nice. I, I think that'll work just fine. Um, it, yep. Yeah, we can see. It. Go ahead and talk a little bit. Can you hear me? Okay. Do I need to turn up the volume? You can turn it up just volume. just a touch. Okay, how's that? Uh, what do you think? Talk again. My name's Steve Snyder. I hope this interview goes well. That's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. And yeah, we can we can hear you just fine. Um, Let so, me turn some background light on. Okay. Sorry about this. No, you're good. You're never you're happened. Good. It's never happened to me before. Steve, every week they got to play to get me on. You know, we got a lot of Murphy's Law around here. So, by the way, Steve, I'd like to introduce Eric and Matt. And my name is Kevin. And uh, this is what we call the Lunch Club. We're going we're gonna to revert to our normal um, opening for this one because your story and what we're going to talk about is so dang important. Um, it's really cool. So thank you for being. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm a little dark here. I apologize for that. No, no, no it's fine. I like yeah. your ceiling, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. indeed. It's a different angle than I thought we were going to have. <laughs> so, 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 guys, just so you know, the name of the book is uh, uh, "Shot Down," and it's about uh, Steve's dad. 
who uh, was shot down in, in a B-17, I believe. And there's a crew of 10. And in during the course of the book, they talk about what happened to all 10 and also what happened to Steve's dad, um, who was named, what's his first name? Howard. Howard Snyder, that's right. And, uh, and all the things that he endured for seven months and all the people that helped him he, he uh, was saved, well, we'll get into it, but he was saved by people from Belgium. And some of them were killed in the process of, of saving him and stuff. And, uh, and by the way, Steve, do you know, I'm sure you do, that uh, coming up on December 7th is the 80th anniversary of the start of World War II. 41, yeah. Yeah, well, years. actually, World War II started in 1939. Well, our you know, American involvement in right. uh, in in World War II, which Correct. which is what most most Americans look at as the start. Even though he he crossed into Poland in 39, and then caused the, the war in Europe. And we did have the Lend Lease Act, which we helped uh, the Allies for a period of time before we actually entered the war. That is right. So I'm a bit of a student of history. You're more so than I, but I'm looking forward to this. So, so, so we're all looking forward to this. So, so we might as well just get started and just go from there. Okay. Okay. All righty. Ready guys. I'm ready. All right then. <clears throat> Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to another episode of My Independence Report. This is, uh, I've been waiting for this for a while now. It's a very, very special episode that we are going to be talking about today. First of all, I'd like to introduce Eric Hall. Eric, how are you? I'm good. How are you? We're good. And, uh, and also, also Matt, Matt Shea is here, and uh, we'd like to thank Matt Shea for being here as well. Hey, Matt. Watch out for cars, though, man. <laughs> <laughs> and our very, very special guest. His name is Steve Snyder. Steve. I got to do this for Steve. <laughs> Steve has written a book. It's all about his father, and the name of the book is uh, "Shot Down." And uh, I want to take you back to the mists of time, because eighty years ago. Uh, coming up on December 7th, the United States entered World War II. Uh, the Boeing 777, or Boeing um, B-17 was built right here in Seattle. And they built literally thousands of them during the war. And one of them was piloted by a gentleman um, who we're going to talk about today. Uh, his name was Howard Snyder. Um, and his son is with us and has written the book because... 
Mr. Snyder Sr. was a pilot of a B-17. And uh, Steve, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you. It is, I, I have to tell you, I know some people. There's a friend of mine. He's 99 years old, and he was a pilot in World War II. I'm so sad to say that after 80 years, we are losing the um, what they called the best generation in the history of the country, and they and um, we're we're losing them at a at a at a sad rate. And so this this history that you've written needs to be kept alive because the greatest generation, which is really what they termed it, is a amazing. It was an amazing time to be an American. We were bombed on December 7th. We got together and worked diligently. Um, women went to work, uh, Rosie the Riveter and uh, other names. They, they sold bonds. They changed everything because we were so um, together. And that was the last time in my memory, even though it was before my memory, <laughs> that we as a country were all driven by the same things. And Steve has written greatly about it. Matt, you'd like to add something? Sadly, the Korean War went down as the Forgotten War, and we don't want that to happen to World War II or any of them. And the people that that worked in World War II survived World War II, but saw some absolutely horrific things. So, Steve, first of all, uh, welcome to the show and tell us about your dad. Oh, gosh. Well, he was born in uh, Norfolk, Nebraska. Um, 1915, the home he was lived in is still there in Norfolk. Uh, he moved out to Southern California when he was 13 years old, right before he started high school uh, with his family. Lived in Eagle Rock, went to Glendale High School. And after he uh, graduated from high school, he went to work for Desmond's Clothing Company in Los Angeles. And he was working there when, uh, in the fall of 1940, uh, President Roosevelt introduced the first peacetime draft in U.S. history. And he signed up for the uh, military in April of 1942. And he was stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington, initially went in the, uh, the, the army into the infantry. Uh, and then three months later, uh, on, uh, in July, he married Ruth Hempel uh, in Pasadena, California. My mom was uh, born and raised in, in Pasadena. It was shortly after she graduated from UCLA, where she was a classmate of the legendary Jackie Robinson. Oh wow! With the Dodgers being in the you know the, the pennant race right now. And then uh, a few months later, as you mentioned, on uh, December seventh, nineteen forty-one, a date which will live in infamy, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor in the United States was a war. Uh, and my mom at the time was really concerned. The future was very uncertain. So she went up to visit my dad over Christmas in Washington. And nine months later, uh, Susan Ruth was born, my oldest sister. And that's who my dad named his plane after. Oh, wow. And he didn't think he could uh, uh, support his new family very well on a private's pay in the army. In the new bride, uh, you know, baby on the way. So he decided to volunteer for the Air Force where he could make more money, especially if he made it through uh, pilot training and became an officer. And in June of 1942, he started his pilot training. He initially went through uh, pre-flight training at Santa Ana, California, and went, then went through the various stages of pilot training, and that began his career uh, in the Air Force. 
But uh, my dad was a great guy. We were very close. Uh, my sisters and I always compared him to John Wayne, who was that type of guy. He was a big guy, six foot three, no nonsense, uh, disciplinarian, you know, believed and had uh, uh, strong morals. You know, but there was no gray area. It was either black or white. And uh, a great guy. You know, he coached my little league teams, uh, supported me. And so he was uh, had a great relationship with me. He didn't talk much about World War II when he was alive, did he? No, like most World War II veterans, he didn't. So I knew the basics uh, of his World War II history growing up. I knew he was a B-17 pilot. He was stationed in England with the Air Force, uh, the 8th Air Force. And his plane was named the Susan Ruth after my oldest sister. He flew bombing missions over occupied Europe and Germany. In February 1944, his plane was shot down over Belgium, and he was missing in action for seven months. But he evaded capture and he made it back to uh, the States. It really wasn't until 1989 when he started talking about it. Uh, in August of that year, uh, the, the Belgium American Foundation uh, in uh, southern Belgium uh, erected a memorial to my dad and his crew. And the other three crew members that were still living at the time went over for the dedication. And there he was reunited with all these Belgian people that hid him from the Germans. We visited these places where he was hidden, and that brought it all back, and he started talking about it. And then five years later, in 1994, I made my first trip to Belgium. I've been there six times now. But that's when it became personal for me, because I went with my parents, and you know, my dad showed me around all these places. I got to meet a couple of his help, uh, helpers. And uh, so that, that was an uh, uh, amazing, amazing trip. It's, it's Eric, anything you'd like to add real quick? I, I'm just stunned. You know, I love the fact that the Belgian people were there for your dad and, and the risk that was involved with that, because I know there was no, there was no, there was no tolerance for well, that kind of thing. Absolutely. The people who uh, helped my dad or any downed airman for that matter were unbelievably brave people they risked not only their lives but the lives of their family and friends because of the german secret police the gestapo found out about it they'd be arrested tortured and either shot or sent to a concentration camp and like kevin mentioned a little earlier some of the belgian people that helped my dad and other members of his crew did meet that fate oh my god two things here the professor on gilligan's island he was shot down in a bomber he was injured and the GI Bill of Rights educated him to become an actor, and the rest is history. Your dad's story, ever so slightly, reminds me a little bit of Anne Frank, a little bit. Well, it had the, the, the pressure definitely involved with the uh, with the Nazis and the, and the Germans, you know, looking for him and trying to come after him. That's 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 true. I've been to Amsterdam and been in the Anne Frank house, and uh, it's very moving. Man, I can imagine. Did your dad talk about a close encounter with the Nazis? Oh, he, uh, yeah, I am unbelievably blessed to know so much and so many details about not only my dad, but on about each member of the crew. And the book is not just about my dad, but it's about what happened to each member of the crew. Five of them came home, but five of them did not. Um, so it talks about their story, goes into detail about their stories, and also about all the Belgian people that risked their lives trying to help. 
and, and by way of in just a second, man, I'll get to you. By way of um, understanding what it was like to be a pilot on a B seventeen bomber stationed in England and flying missions over Germany, uh, the average number of missions somebody would fly before they got shot down was six. These guys knew, and I, I, I thank your dad for his service because that's brave. what he did and, and the bravery that these men exhibited because they knew on any given flight that the odds were they were not going to be able to come home. And it's amazing to me that these guys were that brave. I would have, I would have wet my pants every time I got in the plane to go because it would be so frightening. Your your dad did he ever talk about uh, the the, uh, the the fatality rate that was going on with the B seventeens at that time? Well, as you mentioned, flying combat was, was brutal. There were more men lost in the Eighth Air Force, twenty six thousand than the entire Marine Corps fighting in the Pacific. Oh, man. Another another 28,000 men became prisoners of war after their planes were knocked out of the sky by either German anti-aircraft fire or German fighters. And it was deadly from and dangerous from the time they took off to the, to the time they landed. Uh, but at the peak, there were 40 bomb groups in the 8th Air Force uh, located in an area called East Anglia in England, which is about the size of Vermont. And these bases were only located about five to 10 miles apart. So on the day of a mission, you had hundreds of bombers all taken off at the same time. And back then there was no air traffic control. There was no radar. Usually the weather was socked in. It was overcast and the, they couldn't see anything about until you got above the cloud layer. So mid-air collisions were, were not uncommon. And then they had to form up. Individual planes formed up into three-plane elements. Elements formed up into bomb squadrons. Bomb squadrons formed up into bomb groups. Bomb groups formed up into combat wings. Combat wings formed up into air divisions. And all this took an hour to two hours before they could even begin their uh, mission across the English Channel. And then they had to deal with the elements. These planes were pressurized back then, so above 10,000 feet, they had to go on oxygen or else they'd pass out in a couple of minutes and could die and then it was extremely cold it was minus 40 to 60 degrees below zero so frostbite was a huge problem and many airmen were hospitalized for lengthy periods of time because of the serious frostbite injuries one of my dad's waist gunners was in the hospital for two and a half months wow. and then they had, the next thing they had to deal with was the enemy fighters uh, the germans had a radar station set up along the continental coast of england so the, uh, europe excuse me so they knew when these bomber formations were coming, they'd send up their Air Force, the Luftwaffe, Luftwaffe to intercept them. And then when they neared the target, they would run into anti-aircraft fire. Uh, the Germans had these flak guns. Flak was the German or the abbreviation for the German word for aircraft defense cannon. And they were deadly weapons. They would fire 20 shells a minute. And they were calibrated to explode at the same altitude that these bombers were flying. And when they exploded, it, uh, the shells were filled with all these different shapes and sizes of razor-sharp metal that would burst out hundreds of feet and easily penetrate the thin aluminum skin of these bombers. Um, if a, a shell hit a bomber directly, it would basically disintegrate and disappear. And if it knocked off a wing, that bomber would just drop five miles to the ground like a stone. 
Then after their bombing run, going back to Europe, to their bases at England, the, the bombers that made it through, and they had to face uh, German aircraft uh, or enemy fighters again. So it, it was a, a brutal undertaking. Matt? You had commented that five did not return. In regards to being actually shot down, did the entire crew survive that? Well, uh, it was on a mission to Frankfurt, Germany on February 8th of 1944. My dad's plane dropped their bombs successfully, but their bomb bay doors got hit by flak and uh, they couldn't get them back up. And as a result, that caused a drag on the plane. They started losing airspeed and they started lagging behind the bomber formation going back to England. And like uh, wolves or lions on prey, a couple of German fighters, Fock Wolf 190s, uh, came in for the, for the kill. And in the ensuing air battle, the Susan Ruth was shot down. Uh, two of the crew were killed in the plane when it was attacked. The other eight men were able to bail out, and then various things happened to them that are explained in the book. But both those German fighters were shot down. One was piloted by Siegfried Merrick. His plane crashed, and he was killed in the plane. And the other was piloted by Hans Berger, who was able to bail out and made it through the war. Uh, one day when I was doing my research, uh, my wife asked me, well, why don't you, or told me, actually, I should say, well, why don't you try to find the German pilot that shot down your dad's plane? I'm thinking to myself, she has no idea what she's talking about. She's naive. It's a ridiculous idea, but like a good husband, I did what she told me to, to do, and I found Hans Berger. Ooh, that must have been a good conversation. And fortunately for me, he became a translator after the war, and he speaks perfect English. And I found out that the gunners on my dad's plane actually shot Hans down at the same time he shot them down. They shot each other down. And interestingly, interestingly enough, of all the people that are involved in the shot down story, Hans Berger is the only one that's still living. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he turned 98 years old, and we became friends. That's wonderful. Wow. <laughs> that's he wonderful. Was, uh, and if you go to, uh, there was a um, YouTube presentation that you did, and uh, and they and they show them sitting and talking and and laughing and and you know from his perspective, on uh, being a German um, um, pilot, he was just doing his job and just doing orders. He wasn't. He was a. And turns out he was, he was a very nice man, and uh, he was just on the other side. And and so I'm glad you found him. That, that, that really is an important piece of history to recognize that they're not that, that yes the Nazis the Nazi party and and the and the uh, SS and and some of those were were indeed in, in as as a matter of fact and I hope I'm not portraying this but but um, five guys were were able to walk away three were captured and were subsequently rather than given over to uh, prisoner of war camps, they were shot on the scene, and, and that so it was. It was a horrific time, and your dad, you know, he survived some of the most awful uh, moments of, of life and death that one can imagine. Um, it's 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 amazing what what he was able to do uh, through all of that. Yeah, Hans said it was unfortunate they had to be shooting at each other, but you know that was war. And as he commented, he, 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 he's done this a couple of times, he goes, we weren't all evil Nazis. <laughs> you know, you had the SS and the Nazis and the extremists, you know, they're the ones that were uh, running the concentration camps. But a lot of the, and a lot of people don't realize you had two segments of the, the German 
military. You had the historical, you know, military, uh, the, the Wehrmacht, uh, who were just soldiers, you know, doing their duty. And then you had the, the Waffen SS, which was the armed SS, and those were the uh, committed the atrocities, and those were the, the fanatics and uh, just, uh, you know, horrible, horrible people, to put it bluntly. And let's not forget that uh, it was the traditional army, including um, um, Field Commander Rommel, uh, that that uh, attempted to assassinate Hitler. Um, yeah, they, there were there were a number of assassin assassination attempts on Hitler's life. All yeah. of them failed, unfortunately. Yeah, that that one failed due to they put the bomb between uh, on the wrong side of the table. And uh, there was a uh, uh, oak uh, uh, leg that deflected the blast and allowed Hitler to live, um, which is a story for another time. But, but I, I'm so glad that you wrote the, wrote this book because we need to keep the courage and what what we as a nation went through. Um, nobody today understands what what the nation went through at that time, do they? No, unfortunately not. You know, especially the younger generations, they just take for granted all the freedoms that we enjoy today, and they have no idea the price that was paid and the sacrifices that were made to ensure that we have those those freedoms. Um, basically, uh, well, I retired in two thousand nine, and that's really when I had the time to delve into my dad's war history in more detail. And at the beginning, I had no intention of writing a book, but as I just got into my research and learned more and more about what happened to my dad and the story of the other crew members and the Belgian people, I, I just came to the conclusion that it was so unique and so compelling it needed to be told, so I decided to write a book. And uh, since that time, it's totally changed my life. I basically, my, my passion in life is to... Uh, keep the memory alive of those men uh, who fought the air war over Europe. I, uh, it, it's a part-time job, basically. I go all across the country to air shows, signing copies of my book, tell, talking to people about the air war. Uh, I, I speak uh, before all sorts of uh, organizations uh, about the book and about the 8th Air Force. So it's, it's really my uh, my passion in life. It, it's, it's, it's what I do. Uh, to, I'm leaving... I just got back from a presentation in Salt Lake City, and uh, at the end of this week, I'm going to Georgia to do some presentations down there in South Carolina. And so I really keep busy doing this, but I feel like you said, uh, Kevin, that it's so important that we try to keep the memory of these guys alive. It would, it, yeah. It was, Matt, got anything? Well, I'm just taking this all this in. I remember Life magazine years ago had a bomber pilot that talked about a Japanese fighter plane that kamikaze into the bomber and they're both falling down. They eventually separated. The bomber got started again and the guy wrote a story. The pilot got started again and he read the story. And years later, they show them being best of friends and the pilot standing on a milk crate. Could it be because one was short, one was tall. And they were friends for life after that. Just like your dad's friend was yeah it's too bad i didn't decide to do this earlier you know i would have loved to have my dad have met hans to see what they had to say to each other but my dad uh my dad died in 2007 uh he wasn't the last 
uh, crew member to die, but he was the oldest at 91. And then I didn't decide to write the book until 2012. Well, nowadays, the sad thing is, is that, you know, uh, my, my uh, and I don't know if uh, your dad did this, but the uh, friend of mine, he's 99, and he was in World War II, and they've got a program where you can, if you were a veteran of World War II, they'll fly you free to uh, the Capitol and to and to have a uh, a memorial there. And and did, you, did your dad ever do that, or did you think about doing that? Um, well, they didn't. They hadn't started that uh, when my dad died. It's called the Honor Flight. Ah. Yeah, that's uh, right. yeah, they they climbed to Washington D.C. to the World War II memorial. Uh, the last trip my dad ever took uh, was in 2004. I accompanied him to a reunion of the Air Force's Escape and Invasion Society, and we uh, took a bus. It was in Pennsylvania. We took a bus down to D.C. It was right before the official dedication. But he wanted to see the memorial uh, before he died, and uh, as I mentioned, that was the last trip he ever took. But that was a special special trip with him. And and when he did he ever get back to uh, uh, Belgium? Yes, well, he was there for the dedication, and then he he went back uh, a couple other times. He uh, he stayed in touch with many of the people who helped him until they died. Um, they saved his life, and he he never forgot that. Uh, they exchanged Christmas cards, and he did go over there a couple times and uh, and meet with them at various uh, celebrations. Um, so that they, he said that, that they saved his life. They would let him sleep in their bed. They'd sleep on the floor. Uh, the food was rationed back then, so it was hard to come by. They'd give him, you know, their a larger portion of, of the food. And so they, they were just absolutely wonder, wonderful people. Wow. But then, but then they, uh, and there are several instances described in the book where he was almost discovered by the Gestapo. Uh, and then finally, though, he got tired of hiding. Uh, it was very stressful for, for him because, you know, the Germans could, uh, you know, break in at any moment. Uh, some of the people helping him could be collaborators and turn him over to the Gestapo. And so it, it was, you know, after he bailed out, he had no idea what happened to the other, his buddies on the crew or couldn't contact the U.S. military. And finally, he got tired of hiding. Um, Word came that the Allies had landed at Normandy on June 6th of 44, and he decided to get back in the fight. Unlike most airmen, he was in the infant army for a year in the infantry, so he knew how to fight on the ground. So he, did decide, he decided to join the French Resistance, and he joined a, a unit of the French Resistance. One of his helpers, Amy Coules, uh, escorted him across the border into, into France. And he fought uh, with this French resistance unit for uh, a couple of months before the, the U.S. armies finally came up and liberated the area. And there, he, there's uh, several encounters that they had with the, with the Germans when he was fighting with the uh, resistance. Has uh, a Hollywood producer come a-calling you? <laughs> Not yet. A lot of people who read the book say it should be made into a movie. It's, it's, just, it's just one. I mean, it's, you can't make this stuff up. It's just unbelievable. Uh, the things that uh, my dad and the other members of the crew uh, went through. Uh, when he first bailed out, he, has, he came down in some trees right at the French-Belgium border, and his parachute got hung up in the branches, and he's dangling 20 feet off the ground and couldn't get down. But fortunately for him, a couple of young Belgian men, Henri Franken and Raymond Durvan, came to his rescue before the Germans got to him. Um, 
And he's only, they took him back that night to the Dravan farmhouse, but he only stayed there one night because they thought it was too dangerous for him to stay there any longer than that with German patrols come in the area. So the next night, a Belgium customs officer, Paul Tilken, came and got him on a tandem bicycle to take him to a safer location. Then after that, he was t moved from place to place to place. How long he stayed in any given location depended on how brave the people were who lived there and how dangerous the Belgium underground thought it was for him to stay there. He might spend one night, he might spend six weeks. And then finally, as I mentioned, uh, he got tired of hiding, so he did, decided to join the French resistance. Wow. You know, that's the other thing that a lot of people, younger people, don't recognize is that Europe in total was taken over by the Nazis, uh, all, the, all the way to the uh, English Channel. And so Belgium and uh, France and Poland and all, all these places were, were overrun by the Germans. And so when the Americans came on, uh, December, on um, uh, June 6th and they, and they began to liberate France and Belgium, they considered us absolutely godsend liberators. And they were, they were unbelievably happy with, and, and some of that goodwill continues to today, even though we don't necessarily deserve it like we did then. Uh, but uh, it, it, was, it was amazing that your dad was treated like royalty when he went back there. Absolutely. Uh, the, the Belgian people and uh, the people in the Netherlands, northern in France, uh, to this day, they're still so grateful and so thankful for the the U.S. and for the Allies liberated them from four years of Nazi oppression and Nazi occupation. And they do a great job of educating the younger generations to remember as well, because they went through hell during those four years of Nazi oppression. You know, we've never been occupied. You know, we've never had a, a battle on our soil here in the U.S. So we, we just we have no idea what it was like to lose all the freedoms that and they did in the Netherlands and in Belgium. And they've erected a number of memorials in the area and uh, an anniversary date of those memorials, like the one to my dad and his crew, they have ceremonies. The big ceremonies are all around September 2nd, though, uh, when the, the area where my dad was, uh, right near north of the French border in Chimay and Montmagny, celebrate the liberation of the first crossing over in the Belgium of the U.S. armies. And those celebrations are fabulous. I, I've been to quite a few, and they last several days. How do they celebrate? Oh, they, they set up these big tents that seat hundreds of people where they have lunches and dinners and band concerts and, uh, and dances. Uh, they have. Uh, are these brass bands? Are they, pardon? Are they brass bands? Are they. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, the, uh, the, the local reenactors come out, they have, uh, you know, military vehicle parades, they set up an army camp, uh, the local beer Chimay just flows, the U.S. military is there, the Belgian military, French military, the U.S. ambassador to Belgium comes down with an entourage, all the local villagers come out, uh, and they're just wonderful events, uh, but they have solemn ceremony, ceremonies as well. I made some lifelong dear friends in Belgium and in, in the Netherlands. Uh, one of my dad's crew was buried at the Ardennes American Cemetery in Belgium. And another one of my dad's crew was along with four other, three other U.S. downed airmen that are in the shot down story. The four of them are buried at the Netherlands American Cemetery in Margrave. 
Sal, that uh, you alluded uh, to a little while ago, Kevin, about uh, three of my dad's crew being uh, captured and killed. Well, actually, there was eight airmen, three from my dad's crew and five airmen from three other B-17 crews that were, were captured and uh, interrogated, and all eight of them were shot. So, can do we know why they? Was it just convenience that they were shot? Was it was it they didn't want to take take the time to to take them to a uh, prisoner of war camp, or was that just kind of their their modus operandi? That's just what they did. Well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, we'll never know the answer to uh, to that for sure. They did. But they, they that's, that's a good question. Uh, we'll never know the answer to. Uh, to that for sure. They did. But they, they, they that's, that's a good question. Uh, we'll never know the answer to uh, to that for sure. They did. But they, they, they that's, that's a good question. Uh, we'll never know the answer to uh, to that for sure. They did. But they, they, they were in a time loop. Question. Uh, we'll never know the answer to uh, to that for sure. They did. But, uh oh. Oh, I think I think I'm back. <laughs> okay. That's that's what we call having a uh, um, a uh, technical difficulty there for a second. But uh, so, is, is, did you answer that question, Steve? Or were you able to, or did I interrupt you about about was that just what they did? Is that they they just um, uh, murdered uh, people that they captured? Matt, go ahead. In World War II, there was an American pilot shot down, similar to your dad, and his parachute had felled him, and this was over Germany, I believe, and he hit a snowbank at an angle from being way up there, and when the Nazis came, he was alive, and they reverend that. They took care of him. They took him to a hospital. There was something about, have, was that a miracle? Was it just the odds or what? But anyway, he was taken care of in a hospital and released after the war because he was an exception having survived something like that. I also suspect that it depends upon who you're captured by. Would that be true? Yes. If, if you were captured uh, by the by the Air Force, the Luftwaffe, they would treat you well. Uh, you didn't have any worries about being killed. Uh these uh, these airmen, three from my dad's crew, and then uh, five from another uh, three other crews. They were hiding in a makeshift hut that they, along with some Belgium helpers, uh, erected in the forest uh, just outside of Chimay. And a Belgium collaborator, you know, ratted them out to the uh, Gestapo. And so there were various factions of, uh, of a number of different German police organizations, just not the Gestapo, but they had military police and they also had some regular uh, troops. They came down and surrounded the, the hut and they captured the guys and they, they did have three weapons inside the hut. So one of the theories is, is that, you know, they're, they weren't fighting uh, against the Germans, but in that area, the underground and the resistance was fighting and, uh, you know, assassinating Germans. And so I, one of the assumptions is that, well, they found these weapons, and so they just treated them as terrorists. And after interrogating them, they took them into the schools, schoolhouse, the Chimay, and then after interrogating them, they brought them back out here to where the hut was and then shot them all. Uh, two Germans 
a walk behind each airman. They walked in different directions, and then they were each shot in the back twice and buried in a, a common grave uh, in Belgium that was discovered uh, by the, the Belgium Graves uh, Registration after the war. And there's a whole big war crimes re, uh, investigation done. I have I have a copy of it. It's you know, yay thick. It goes into deep because they they they, uh, they interviewed all these Belgian people and actually some of the Germans, but only one of the Germans was actually uh, tried, convicted, and, and hanged for the crime. Oh wow! And Matt, any talk about the Geneva Convention? Um, well, the, 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 they were signatory to the Geneva Convention, like the U.S. The Russians weren't uh, signatory to the, the Geneva Convention. Neither were the Japanese. Uh, so, you know, and as a whole, the Germans, you know, they abided by the, the Geneva Convention. But the, the the various German units or Nazi units that uh, captured uh, the members of my dad's crew and these other airmen, they they you know they were more on the police side uh and actually it was a group of russians who would uh uh general vaslov's uh he surrendered to the germans uh during the russian the german invasion of russia was actually fighting on on the, on the side of the germans so some of the troops involved were russian troops so they took no mercy on those guys needless to say now, isn't it isn't it also because the germans were not as dedicated, I guess, guess dedicated is a, is a decent word, to to justice and being fair and the rules of war, and they were they in 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 segments they could just go and do whatever they wanted, really. Well, the the, the units that captured the, the, these guys, they were more more associated, you know, with the Nazis and the SS as opposed to the regular army, the Wehrmacht. Now that was another, you know, reason. Yeah. So when you, let's talk about you a little bit. When you were growing up, and and uh, I know your dad was a disciplinarian, and he was a strong guy. He was a John Wayne type, and was it was a was a great guy. I, I know you looked up to him, and you miss him terribly. Uh, he was he was he was a really good man. And what did you do for your career? What did you do before you got involved in this? great new passionate thing that you're doing and you're flying all over the country uh, talking to groups and keeping the spirit alive, which I commend you for greatly. Well, thank you. Well, I was born in Pasadena, uh, raised in that area. Like my mother went to UCLA. Uh, when I was there, I was a classmate of Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The guy to look up to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who's, read, who's read my book, by the way. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Very cool. And uh, after uh, college, uh, I moved to uh, the beach. I live in Seal Beach right now, which is a little uh, quiet beach town in Orange County, about 40 miles south of Los Angeles, and have a second home in Sedona, Arizona, so go back and forth between the two. But I got into sales and sales management uh, the last 36 years with a company called Vision Service Plan, VSP. Uh, yeah, which I know that. Yeah, which provides vision care as an employee benefit. Yeah, yeah. Corporations offer their employees to cover eye exams, glasses, and contact lenses. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, I, I went to work for them in uh, 73, uh, 
about 10 years, I was uh, regional manager in Southern California, Southern Nevada, and then the company went national in 85, and I became VP of national accounts, and I started traveling all over the United States, calling on Fortune 500 companies. Hmm. And then uh, 10 years later, uh, kind of a, a unique situation, even though I lived in California, I became uh, VP of our Eastern Sales Division, which is everything east of the Mississippi. So for, for 25 years, I traveled all around the United States uh, working for VSP, and now really I'm back doing the same thing I was doing, you know, traveling all over the place. But it's sell it, instead of selling the Vision Care plan, I'm selling basically a book. <laughs> so you don't mind traveling by air at all, do you? All, yeah, back in the day it was kind of fun. Now it sucks, you know. Not not only. Because <laughs> Not only because of, tw uh, you know, 9-11, but now with COVID, you have to wear masks all the time. You know, it's a it's a real pain. At least you're not getting shot at, though. <laughs> you got yeah. that on your dad, you know. <laughs> Are you in the Million Morale Club? Oh, gosh. I, 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 I'm in the American. I, I'm in the Two Million Mile Club of American. Oh and two Million Miles of United. Yeah. Yeah, they escort you onto the plane, and you got your own place to in the airport to go to that the rest of the riffraff can't get to because well, you know. that, that was the that was olden days. Now, oh, yeah, uh, now yeah. now now you can't even get a drink of water hardly on a plane. Uh, yeah, I used to I used to travel around a lot before two thousand one, and and I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. But yeah. and thank God that you do because you are keeping <laughs> it alive for the, the, the pure grit of the guys that did it and the understanding that, that without their sacrifice, we could be speaking German today. Or Russian. Or Russian, <laughs> yes. Which we might say something anyway. That's true, man. Yeah, that's, a whole, that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, that's your second book. <laughs> we have the Boeing Flight Museum out here, and I was there one day, and they had World War II fighter pilots giving the tour oh how cool is that yeah they have the boeing b uh up there and uh the museum of flight uh, i was up there a few years ago and i uh, went through it that's a that's a great museum it's a couple miles away from my house i've got a story to share with you my mom had uh, a good friend of hers at a senior center that she was part of and her husband her new husband at the time was in belgium he was an american soldier and it was in some battle over there and they uh, procured some items out of the house it was in belgium and uh, this gentleman knew that i liked art and he was coming to the end and you know splitting things up getting rid of some things and he gave me this uh, painting that was done in belgium that they sort of smuggled out and brought to here and it's mm -hmm. always been one of my favorite pieces because of the story and I don't you know I don't know any of the great details of the story but the painting isn't uh, it's not really attractive but I, I love the story of it that it was smuggled out and you know brought here because the guy loved the painting himself and you know some people are taking Jeep parts and I guess he was taking paintings which <laughs> I think is cool yeah by the way Steve was it the third army that uh, uh, liberated uh, Belgium well, that was the first and third armies that came up through France. Actually, my dad, seven months after he was shot down, uh, one day a word came that there were U.S. troops in a nearby village of Trelo in France. 
So my dad walked into town, that, in the town square, and went up to an army major. Actually, a, that was an element of Patton's Third Army, which was coming to France after two days. And then uh, they interrogated him to make sure my dad was who, who he said he was. And uh, he hopped, he got a hopped a ride on a convoy taking German prisoners to Paris. And then from Paris, he uh, hopped on a transport and made it back to uh, to England, where he sent a Western Union telegram to my mother saying, fit as a fiddle, honey, bank the money. He had all that back pay coming. Now, what did, <coughs> because he was uh, um, MIA for seven months, what was the reaction of the family when he, because, you know, there were lots and lots and lots of guys that flew that were MIA that were never heard from again. Like, like, had it not been for you and your research and, and stuff, the guys that were actually executed, their, their families might not ever have known what actually happened to them. Um, what was it like for your family after seven months to get that call that he was alive and well? But that's a, that's a great question. As I, as I mentioned, they were shot down on February 8th, and on February 23rd, all the families received a Western Union telegram uh, saying that their loved one had been shot down. And at the time, my mother was pregnant with her second child, so that was really tough on her. Um, my dad didn't know until he got back to England, you know, whether he had a boy or a girl. It's funny that in all the letters my dad had wrote to my mother before being shot down, he was always referred to the baby as Steve or Stevie, but it turned out to be Nancy. I, I, came, <laughs> along, I came along after the war. But it was a terrifying time uh, when they got those telegrams. Uh, there's lots of excerpts from these letters that are in the book that make it very moving and very personal between the mothers and wives and sweethearts and other family members. Uh, communicating to one another, trying to uh, strengthen one another, encourage one another uh, to have faith and, and hope that their loved one would, would turn up. Uh, some of the guys in my dad's crew did become prisoners of war, so they were able to write back home and say that they were okay, but they didn't know what happened to my dad or uh, these other members on, or on, the, on the crew, except the two that were killed in the plane. So there, there, there was tragedy and, and, and triumph, but it, that was a really uh, tough time. But I, I can imagine when my dad, my, you know, sent the telegram back home and my, my mother and other family members, uh, my dad's parents and my mother's parents found out that that had to be the, the most joyful day of their lives when they find that, found out that uh, my dad was coming back home alive. And it gave a lot of other families hope as well that their MIA uh, might be coming home as well. Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, that proved not to be true. Right. The, uh, of the three of the crew members that were killed by the, by the Nazis, um, the, all the relatives or the family was told is that they were killed. But uh, my dad's co-pilot, uh, George Ike, his dad, Derwood Ike, uh, who lived in Rochester, he, he would not abide by that. He wanted to know what happened. So he uh, and uh, got the, I forget the, who was the uh, senator at the time uh, for his area, but he pressured him and the senator was able to open up a full war crimes investigation. And that, uh, as a result of that, they found out exactly what happened uh, to these three guys. 
Uh, one of the things that I'm so blessed with, too, about not only knowing the story and the details of the story and all the Belgian people who are involved in the story, but almost all the places where the events took place are still there today. That schoolhouse where the, they were interrogated, the location of the hut. Uh, the hut's not there anymore because they blew it up with grenades, but the location is there. All these places where my dad stayed were there. I've been in the rooms where he was hidden. Um, wow. So I, it's amazing to go back and visit places, you know, where history took place, you know, um, you know, 75 years ago. And the name of the book is Shot Down. And I just wanted to say that not only is it a historical piece about what happened to your dad, but all the other uh, uh, flyers that were with him that day in the B-17, what happened to them, the families, the, you've done, you've done a remarkable piece of journalism here. And uh, I, I, I thank you so much uh, for what you've done. And I hope that anybody that listens to this will run out to either Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever they can find it and buy this book. It is, it is phenomenal what you've done. And I thank you. Well, thank you. I, I didn't have any, you know, writing background or training, but the story is just so amazing. Uh, the, the, I didn't add or interpret or anything to the story. It's all based on firsthand testimony by the people who were involved in the event. What I did add was a great deal of historical information and anecdotes of anecdotes about and surrounding the war to put it into context and give it in detail, such as information about the 8th Air Force, the Air War over Europe, and, and things like that. If anyone wants an autographed copy of the book, they can go to my website, which is stevesnyderauthor.com. Snyder spelled S-N-Y-D-E-R. But most people get the book on Amazon. And the, and the complete title of it is Shot Down, The True Story of Pilot Howard Snyder and the Crew of the B-17, Susan Roof. And you're talking to a couple of writers, uh, both uh, uh, Eric and Matt. Matt's written nine books, and so they can appreciate all the things that you did. Matt, go ahead. We had Pappy Boynton, who went to the University of Washington. A friend of mine attended an autograph session with Pappy Boynton and the Japanese pilot who shot him down. They were together, and he got their autographs. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. So where are you off to next? Where do you got to fly to? I'm flying to Atlanta. I'm doing a presentation to the Georgia chapter of the 8th Air Force Historical Society. Very cool. And then I'm going to Savannah uh, to attend the 8th Air Force Historical Society reunion. Hmm. Uh, why, why I'm in town, I'm going to do a presentation at the Mighty 8th uh, Air Force Museum in Pooler, Georgia. And then from there, I'm going up to Greenville, uh, South Carolina. To make a present to the Poinsettias, Poinsettia Military uh, History Group, and then back to Atlanta to do a presentation to the Vietnam Veterans Business Association in Atlanta. My gosh. So I keep pretty busy. <laughs> I think there's cornbread in your future. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think that uh, when you were younger that you'd be a rock star at your age today? Well, <laughs> hardly, hardly a rock star, but. Uh, <laughs> I never ever imagined in my wildest dreams I'd be doing this. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, it's it fantastic. really is. And we and we love your story and, and we love your heart 
and uh, your desire to keep you, your dad's memory alive. I admire your dad, dad, man. Yeah, and your dad was your dad was one tough guy, uh, and uh, we 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 thank him and we thank you uh, for his service. Well, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate being on the show. It's been uh, a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. Well, good. We we got to have you back when it's, it's fairly soon, so that we can talk more about this. Because you know, it it was it was, in my opinion, the greatest generation. Absolutely, yeah, without a doubt. And uh, at the end of the war, there were 16 million World War II veterans. Now there's less than two percent of those men still with us. Oof, man. So you if know. you have the opportunity, if you see a, if you see a, because I see them occasionally, a uh, license plate that says. Uh, veteran of Pearl Harbor or a veteran of World War II, make sure that you cut them a break and let them into traffic and and be and be nice to them because they've they've earned every little bit of respect that we can give them. Amen. So, gentlemen, anything else you'd like to add? It's been an honor. It's been an honor. Steve, you're serving the country. That's what you're doing through this, and thank you. Thank you. Well, it's it's an honor to do it. Uh, I'm privileged and, and blessed to be able to do it. And please go get the book. It will be a book that you will not put down from the moment you pick it up to the moment you're done with it. It is it is a remarkable story, and uh, and we thank you for being here. Much appreciated. Is there anything that this is the time of the show when I like to, to uh, turn it over to you? Is there anything you'd like to tell our audience? Uh, anything at all? Oh, um, well, one, one thing about the book that's uh, nice is that there's over 200 time period photographs of the book. So you can visualize everything that, that you're reading about. So that makes it uh, unique in the, in the print version. I, obviously, if you get the, the ebook or the, the audio book uh, you don't have any pictures of those well the ebook has 24 but uh I, I would encourage people to you know if you have a local air museum uh to go visit it and see there's lots of old war birds from world war ii that are in these museums that uh that are just amazing to see some of them are still flying out there um uh, and when on veterans day or memorial day you know get the flag out and, and fly it proudly. And if you ever happen to have the opportunity to go hear any of these veterans still speak, uh, you know, they're in their mid uh, to late nineties. So uh, they're not out there too much, but uh, please do so. But uh, these air museums are, are amazing places. And uh, right there in Washington, you know, the museum of flight, uh, you gotta go, you gotta go see that. But there, there's really nice air museums all across the country. We've come to the end of our time together, and Steve Snyder has been our guest. Uh, go get the name of the the name of the book is Shot Down. Could you give me the sub the subtitle of it? The true story of pilot Howard Snyder and the crew of the B seventeen Susan Ruth. We salute you greatly, sir. If you'll stay right where you are, um, I'll be right back. I got to do this. And thanks for listening to this episode all the way to the end. Hey, pretty cool. Hey, don't forget to follow us so you can receive regular updates and new posts. And remember, take care of each other because each other's all we've got. See you next time on My Independence Report.
Steve, thank you so much for being here. Oh, well, thank you for having me on the show. I'm sorry we had that. I had some te technical difficulties here. That's all right. I did too. So we're here. <laughs> it's been terrific, Steve. If anybody sees that painting and says, hey, that guy took it out of our house, I'm happy to send it back. <laughs> <laughs> Do all you guys live in the Seattle area? Yep. Pretty yeah, much. Pretty much, I live, yeah. Uh, I live about three miles away from the Air Museum in Burien. Oh. Yeah. And I'm just north of it a little bit. I'm from South Seattle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. been a few years since uh, I've been up uh, to Seattle. Well, oh, I love Pasadena, man. Pasadena is a gorgeous town. Next time you got to go to the uh, Boeing Museum, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. I live right outside of, air, of the uh, airport. Oh, that, that, that sounds good. That sounds yeah. good. Yeah. So thank you, Steve. We want to honor your time. So, but and we got to run. But you have a great day and and fly carefully, please. Don't get shot down. <laughs> Wonderful to meet you, Steve. Fantastic job. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, I appreciate Steve. it. You guys take care. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, I'm going to sign off. Bye. We'll see you. Bye -bye. Great, great job, Eric.